tell you, every week I come up here, I feel like uh, you guys put another obstacle for me to navigate around. Y'all want me to stay up here instead of roaming the aisles? I don't know, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely for the cameraman and sound man, says the sound guy, right? Take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to Hebrews 7. If you need a Bible, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you, and I believe the Bible pew in front of you, page 695. So if you want to turn to page 695, somebody check me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, shout out the right number. Um, but we're in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We covered a lot of territory last week, and I know many of you said, yeah, tell me about it. Um, got news for you. The <laughs> lofty goals again this week. I'm going to try and actually cover all of chapter 7 today. So we've got a lot of territory, so we need to probably get moving. Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, I'm not going to give you a lot of background this morning because you've got a Bible, and if you don't, you need to get one. And if you need one, see me, I'll get you one. You can go back and read Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and you'll be up to speed. Hebrews 7. Today's message is entitled, Jesus the Guarantor. I know some of you are saying, is that even a word, Pastor? Well, you know me, I like to create words, so if it's not, it's official entry today. Uh, now, actually, I did check it. It is a word. A guarantor is one who guarantees. Right? Makes sense, right? Okay. We live in a day where you see it all the time. Guaranteed. Guaranteed for 30 days. Guaranteed for six months, you know. Guaranteed. But we live in a day where a guarantee don't mean a lot today, does it? Now, some of you may remember a time when... A handshake and your word was all that was needed. Even I remember that. I remember my dad teaching me that when you give someone your word, you keep your word. Your word meant something. Your word meant everything. You give someone a guarantee, you guarantee it. You know, this comes from scriptural truth and authority. We learned last week, I will give a little bit of background, last time, last week, chapter 6, we talked about Abraham, and we talked about how he was given a promise, and he was given an oath from Almighty God. A promise and an oath. We learned last week that according to the passages in Hebrews we've been looking at, it says it is impossible for God to lie. If God says something, you can trust it. He is trustworthy. Think about it for a second. God, by definition, would no longer be God if any untruth came from Him. God, by definition, is truth. God cannot lie. It's impossible. And so with that said, Jesus the guarantor, we're going to take a look at a little more in depth again who Jesus is, specifically focusing today on Jesus our high priest, the great high priest. So if you would follow along in Hebrews chapter 7 as we begin reading the word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest, of the Most High God. 
who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth. Gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what Further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety, a guarantee, a guarantee, a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevailed by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need, who, who does not need daily, as those high priests do, offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's? For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will please bless the reading of your word. I pray that you will bless the teaching of your word. I pray that you will open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, and give us a heart of understanding. Lord, as I proclaim your truth this morning, anoint me and use me. Let me just be a vessel. Speak to your people. And Lord, for those that are here that may not know you, may you draw them by Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's unpack this passage of Scripture. I know there's a lot there. If you've tuned out early, you need to tune back in, okay? I'm going to try and break this down in a little story form so this will help follow. Because I know sometimes we get to read through this, we kind of lose our way. So tune back in, let's hear the story. Here's what's going on in the text. Melchizedek has been introduced. Who is this character? Who is this Melchizedek? Um, you recall he was introduced in... Hebrews chapter 5. In fact, look there real quick, if you will. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. This is where we first hear about this, this character in the New Testament. And over in Hebrews chapter 5, and if you'll notice uh, in verse, um, first time here, we see uh, that he is introduced in Hebrews 6, 5, 6, 5, 6. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears for him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Now he goes on and he says in verse 10, Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and he's referencing again Christ, but he goes on, he says, verse 11, Of whom we have much to say, this speaking of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He says, the writer is saying to the Hebrew audience, again, who's the Hebrew audience? These are the Hebrew people who have received Christ, but there's also those there in that gathering who've rejected Christ, and they're saying, guys, we got to go back into tradition. We need to go back into our religion. And, and the writer's saying, no, 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 no. Why do you want to go back into the Old Testament way of doing things? Those are types. Those are shadows. They were pointing to something. They were pointing to someone. They were pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You don't need to go back to animal sacrifices. You don't need to go back to the priestly duties. You don't need to go back to the temple. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. He was buried. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. He has ascended into heaven. He's entered into the Holy of Holies. And he is there, sat down at the right hand of the Father. And he forever lives to intercede. Whosoever will, let him come. 
But these religious people are rejecting that Jesus is the only way. No, 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 we need to go back to our traditions. And then there's those who are kind of, I don't know, you know, I like the way Grandpa used to do it, and I kind of grew up in that church setting, and maybe I need to go back to that kind of... No, 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 Jesus is the way. Now, the writer is arguing at this point. He says, I want to tell you about this guy named Melchizedek. And, and, and no doubt he had a great reverence, Melchizedek. Because remember, the writer's already talked about uh, how great the angels were, but Jesus was better. How great the prophets were, but Jesus was better. How great Moses was, but Jesus was better. He was appealing to all these traditional things that the Jewish audience really would have been taken to. And so now he appeals to the mystical Melchizedek. And he says, I want to tell you about Melchizedek, but I can't tell you because you're dumb. This is what that means. Dull of hearing. You, you're, 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 you can't even get the ABCs of the Old Testament down. Those ABCs of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And you missed it. You missed it. So how in the world can you understand the things I want to tell you about Melchizedek? So now he takes two chapters to try and get them saved. He gives those unbelievers, because again, there's, he's, he's writing to three different people, the unbelievers, the believers, and those on the fence. The unbelievers, the believers, and those on the fence. That's the audience. Guess what? The audience here today, there's believers, there's unbelievers, and there's those of you on the fence. That's the reality. And so he's making the argument. I want to tell you about my kids, but I can't. So then he goes into this great chapters 5 and 6 and 7, right prior to 7. You look at the argument he's making to, again to try and say, look man, summarize, you need to get right with Jesus. You need to follow Christ. You need to surrender to Christ. He's the only way. If you reject the full revelation, you've had the Old Testament, you've had the, that, that, you understood the types. Now you've seen the fulfillment in Christ. If you reject him, it's impossible to renew you again. It's impossible for you to be saved because there's nothing else that can save you. He's the only one who can save you. You walk away from that, you drift away from that, the end's destruction. There's no hope. It's not a loss of salvation. That's not what it's teaching. He's just saying if you turn your back on, on that which is truth, there is no hope. Now he shifts back to, at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter 6, He's given this argument again about the promises and the oath and Abraham, and he's making this case. And now he says, all right, I was going to tell you about Melchizedek. Now that I've given you the gospel, now you're ready. Let me tell you about Melchizedek. So he goes back into telling you about Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? The Old Testament gives us two scriptures. This is all we know. Genesis chapter 14, okay, and then Psalm 110. These are the only two references in scripture where we find out about Melchizedek's life. So, I'm going to read you a summarized version. This comes from the Epistle to the Hebrews by Homer Kent. Let me just give you a quick synopsis of this guy as we find the story and the account in the book of Genesis. Now, you'll recall in the book of Genesis, Abraham and his son Lot, they were kind of, you know, raising some livestock together. And they weren't really getting along, the workers, and having some issues. And so he said, Abram said, choose, you know, which, which territory you want. You can have that. I'll take what you don't take. So Lot takes Sodom and Gomorrah, takes that area. It was the plush land. It was the green land. It looked good. 
Guess what? Sin looks good for a season. Oh, yeah, the party looks good for a while. The end's always destruction. It's deceptive. Lot pursued that which was deceptive. We know how that ends, right? So, but in this point of the story, Lot gets kidnapped. Five kings assemble. They bring in their troops. They pillage, they take, and they kidnap Lot and take him away. Listen to this account. Melchizedek is mentioned in only two Old Testament passages. We talked about those, Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And there's a prophetic statement of Christ in Psalm 110.4, which we'll look at later. The former's in view here, the Genesis account. Abraham had gone to the rescue of his nephew Lot after his capture by the coalition of five kings who had conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. God granted Abraham a most remarkable victory. And upon his return, he met Melchizedek, king of Salem, the king of an ancient city-state, Jerusalem. Was also a priest of the true God. He pronounced upon Abraham a priestly blessing and in return received from Abraham a tenth of the spoils. In view of Abraham's knowledge of God at this time, it is inconceivable that he would have acknowledged... I know some of you just thought, inconceivable. I do that every time I read that word too, sorry. Uh, in view of Abraham's knowledge of God at this time, it is inconceivable that he would have acknowledged the priesthood of anyone other than a representative of the true God. Melchizedek must therefore have been one of those rare persons... Abraham himself was another who, will still, who still held the true faith handed down from Noah. So, Abraham meets Melchizedek. He is called, according to the text, back in Hebrews, who is this guy? What do we know about Melchizedek? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Let's stop there. We know Melchizedek's a king. He's a king. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Okay, we know he's king, and we know he's a priest. And he's a priest of the Most High God. Two things we know. I know this is tough stuff to figure out, isn't it? Continue reading. He was king. He was a priest. Well, what type of king was he? What type of king was he? It says here that he was a king of righteousness. He was a king of righteousness. And by the way, the word Salem is where we also get the word shalom. It's the word for peace. So he's a king of peace. Do you see why the writer of Hebrews is now appealing to this timeless character who is a type of... By the way, you do understand types in the Old Testament doesn't mean literal comparatives, right? So for example... When it talks in the New Testament that Jesus is like the brazen serpent in the Old Testament that was lifted up 
And it, when he was lifted up, the people, remember in the Old Testament the story, they're in the wilderness, and they were bit by snakes. Ah, they must have been at my house. Ah, they're bit by snakes. And if they looked at the brazen serpent, they would be healed, right? They would be saved. Well, of course, we know Jesus is not like a piece of brass. That's not what it's saying, right? But the New Testament says that if Christ be lifted up, those who look unto him, those who, again, seek to believe in faith and come to him, will be saved. So there's, these are types, right? The Lamb of... Remember John the Baptist? Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus ain't going, meh, meh. That's not what that means, right? We understand types and shadows. In the Old Testament, we have types and shadows. So now the writer in Hebrews is giving us a type. He's saying Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Christ is like the priestly. He's like the order of Melchizedek. So in what ways? What ways is the writer wanting the Hebrew listener to understand these types? He's priest of the most high God. Priest of the most high God. He's priest without lineage. What does that mean? He's made like the Son of God. Look in verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, this is where some people get all mystical with it. Some people even say, oh, we think this is a Christophany or a theophany. This is, you know, God. This is a pre-incarnate Christ making an appearance. No, no. It says he's like. If it was him, he wouldn't say, well, he's like himself. He's kind of like himself. No, no. If it was him, it would say, we, we would know. There's, then there are times in the Old Testament we see Christophanies, theophanies. This isn't one of them. What the writer is conveying and what the Hebrew audience understood and what we would still know today is we don't have a record. There's no account, no genealogical account of his beginning. And there's no genealogical record of his end. So it's almost as if this guy appears out of nowhere and then vanishes. I'm the white shadow. You can't see me. You know? He's disappeared, right? There's no beginning and there's no end. Type, typology. Jesus, in his humanity, we know who his earthly mother and father was, right? But what the writer is referencing is his deity aspect. God has no beginning. God has no end. Now think about what the writer is presenting to the audience. You guys are wanting to hold on to the Old Testament stuff. Why do you want to go back to animal sacrifices? Why do you want to go back to these types of priests who came from the law, which would be the Mosaic law? And this is where verses 11 through 13 in the text, he makes the argument. So let me just read and catch this up. Go to verse 4, we'll get there. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. 
And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the, by the better. You might want to circle that one. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of the father when Melchizedek met him. So here's this great man, Melchizedek, and even Abraham, who was, one of the, who was the revered of the faith. I mean, this is where the Jewish chosen people came from. Remember last week when we talked about him taking his only son, whom through the lineage would come, the promised seed, which was a prophetic reference to Christ, not Isaac. Because that promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. He says, I'll offer up my own son, believing God that if he even took his son's life, that he would be able to raise him from the dead. Again, a prophetic picture of what was to come. Eventually, Moses sets up as God leads the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood came through the line of Aaron, right? And when somebody would die, another priest would have to step in, right? And remember, sometimes they go into the Holy of Holies with a, with a rope tied onto their ankle and little bells around their little dress because if they weren't right with God and they entered into the Holy of Holies, uh, don't hear the bell. They're dead. Pull them out, boys! They'd pull that rope out and drag him out. Need a new priest. And they'd have to come through the line of Levi. So what's the writer saying? He's saying, look, you guys want to go back to the Old Testament practices, the lineage of Levi? I got news for you. That's the lesser. For example, Melchizedek, who we don't know where he came from or where he went, but he sure wasn't of the seed of Abraham. And yet Abraham gives him tithes. Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem, king of righteousness, king of peace, gives the blessing to Abraham. Who's the better? Who's the lesser? Abraham's the lesser. So you recognize Melchizedek as being the greater. Why in Sam Perkins Hill will you not accept Jesus as being the greatest, the best? The finality, the eternal high priest. This is his plea to these traditional people. He's trying to say, what is wrong with you people? Why would you go back to something lesser? That's like saying, you know what? I got myself a new F-150 truck, but I'm really thinking about trading it in for a Datsun. You know, remember the Datsun trucks? Do they still make those, those little, well, anyway. I'm thinking about getting rid of the old BMW for a moped. Why? Why would you do that? Well, I'm thinking about going back to the old priesthood, sacrificing a little animal every now and then. Why? This is the argument being made. The Mosaic Law is insufficient, guys. It was a type. 
It was a shadow. It was pointing to something. It was telling us about God. And we missed it. So, he continues his argument. Isn't it interesting that, the, that Abraham here gives this tithe, this tenth, after the... And by the way, Abraham was probably military background. He made mincemeat of those boys taking his nephew. You don't mess with my family. Must be kin to the Harold boys. He went and mopped them up, man, and took the spoils, and on the way back, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And he offers him a tenth. The word he uses here is acrothenion. Acrothenion. It's the top of the heap. Used to in pagan practices. And remember, Abraham was a pagan before he was a believer, like most of us. They used to pile up the spoils, all the gold, and they put all the good stuff on top. Y'all seen Lord of the Rings? Y'all remember when the dragon was there and all the gold's piled up? Yeah, ooh, the jewel falls to the bottom. Yeah, all the stuff's piled up on top. He said, this is the heap. He gives him the top of the heap. Now, this was not a message on tithe. I know some of y'all got nervous when you saw tithe mentioned so many times through the book of Hebrews. You thought, oh, here we go again. Preacher going to talk about money. Just this little bit. The best. The first fruits. That's what we see as the example for us. Enough said. So, it, it, we see this practice. Now we see here the Mosaic law. We see here in verses 11 and following. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of, of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man is official, officiated at the altar. What's he saying here? He's saying in verse 11, the impossibility of perfection is through the law. You will never be good enough. You will never keep God's law perfectly. Galatians tells us that the law was given to us as a tutor, a teacher, to bring us to Christ. Because you know what the law does? It causes me to reflect. Thou shalt not lie. Have you ever lied? Have you ever told one lie? And if you say no, you just lied, so welcome to the party. Guys, by nature, we live in a fallen world. There is a problem in the world. We are all broken because man in our headship, and this is going to come into play, the Bible talks about headship, in Adam, we all die. Therefore, in Christ, we all live for those who are in Christ. We were all in the loins of Adam. When he looked at Eve and said, whoa, man. We were the glimmer in Adam's eye. Some of y'all got that. Some of you didn't. We, are, we were in the loins of Adam. And when Adam and Eve fell in rebellion, 
the sin curse passed to the offspring. We are a product of our parents, Adam and Eve. But before you start blaming them, guess what? If you were there, you'd have done the same thing. And if you don't think so, you're struggling with another issue called pride. <laughs> you see how the sin nature has corrupted all of us? We're all born dead. The Bible says we're all born dead spiritually. We're born dead in our trespasses and sin. And unless the Spirit of God quickens you and makes you alive, you will not desire the things of God. You will not be born again. You will not want anything to do with church gathering, church people reading the Bible. Give me a break, man. There's a party going on right here, you know. You're going to waste your time on that stuff, right? Can somebody get the air going? It's a little hot in here. Maybe it's just my dance moves. Oh, just kidding. Please, somebody, one of my deacons, don't everybody look at each other and say, is he going to get it? Is he going to get it? Uh, brother Dean, would you mind? I'll trust you with it. How about that? Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. I'll try and cool it down a little bit up here. So we're all born spiritually dead. Guess what? If we don't get a great high priest to intercede for us, to represent our case to God, we're in trouble. If God doesn't do something to reach down and save you and me, we're in trouble. I got good news for you this morning. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of both those things. Jesus Christ is God reaching down to mankind. God enrobed in the flesh. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And unlike the Levitical priests offering animal sacrifices, Jesus offered himself the Lamb of God without blemish. So now, Jesus Christ, buried, dead, rose on the third day, victorious over death, blazed a trail to glory, and has prepared a way for all of us. that we can have access by the shed blood of Christ, by the high priestly duties of an eternal priest who lives forever to intercede on our behalf, who sits in the Holy of Holies. The, the Levitical priest dare not sit. No, sir. He stood. And he offered, by the way, he'd get in there, he'd clean those utensils. He would offer the sacrifice first for the sins of himself, the sins of the people. He'd take that blood of that animal sacrifice and he would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle that upon the mercy seat. But Jesus Christ, fulfilling all of these types, all of these things that are laid out in the Old Testament. Guys, get this in your heart and your head. Do you see the impossibility of the thousands of years of everything that's laid out in the Old Testament scriptures, you do realize it was written over thousands of years by 40 different authors, right? Held the pen. The Holy Spirit was the author. But the Holy Spirit moved men to write. Little bit on the crazy side that you follow this common thread all the way through the scriptures and they do one thing and one thing only. 
They point us to the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ. It's for His glory. This book is not just another holy book. This is the final authority given to us from God. And comparatively, you can look at any other holy books you want, but they do not hold weight The Holy Scriptures of God is the only thing that cannot have holes poked in it. Now, if you want to go ask a mechanic about brain surgery, I'm sure he'll tell you a thing or two. And if you want to go ask a surgeon about how to fix your car, you may or may not get a good answer. So if you want to go ask your drunk uncle what he knows about the Scriptures, I'm sure he'll give you a few lessons of Sunday school. If you want to go ask that professor who has dedicated his life to study in the Scriptures for the purpose of disproving it, I'm sure you're going to get some seeming, seeming contradictions. But I challenge you, take those seeming contradictions and go to someone who has tasted and eaten and seen who Christ is. Someone who knows genuinely who Jesus Christ is who's dedicated their heart and life to knowing Him more and more. And I believe you will find answers. Whether you accept them or reject them is a revealing of your heart. A revealing of your heart. So, the Mosaic Law. Let's see what time it is. Let's wrap this up. So here's the thing. It was impossible to achieve perfection through the law. The law shows me and you were guilty. It shows me and you we need a savior. It shows me and you we need a high priest. Levitical law, the Levitical priesthood could not do that. It could not do that. Verse 12, the fact that the law must have been changed in as much as the priesthood was... Again, how do you go from Melchizedek to Levitical priesthood? We know which one's greater. We know which one's lesser. Even Aaron and Levi tithed to Melchizedek, so to speak, in the loins of Abraham. Just as we were in the loins of Adam. Verse 13, Christ was obviously of Judah. He wasn't from the line of Levi. Again, here the writer of Hebrews is making this argument. This is why Jesus is likened to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is not. Because I know some of you good Jewish scholars, He was not born in Bethlehem. Our scriptures do not say that. And they always have a British accent. That's what my daughter says. For those of you who have seen her, her video, she calls it a British accent, not an accent. But anyway. You may say, well, he didn't come from the line of Levi. He, therefore, cannot be a priest. He's like the order of Melchizedek. In fact, he came through the line of Judah. What was Jacob's dying proclamation for Judah, his son Judah? What would come through his line? That's the kingly line. Do you see the type 
Melchizedek's a king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek's a king of peace. Jesus is the king of peace. Jesus is both king and priest. This is to show that Christ was a different priest and is not debatable because God Himself said the Messiah would be after the order of Melchizedek. Go quickly, hold your spot. Psalm 110, Psalm 110, Psalm 110. This is the other mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 and verse 4. Remember last week we talked about God, God swears, but not like you're thinking. Right? He swears, and he has to swear. Because everybody swears by something greater. I swear on my mama's grave. You know, they're always trying to appeal to something that has value, something that's like really serious to them. So if God's going to swear, how does, who does he have to swear by? If he's going to swear by something greater, uh, he can't. He has to swear by himself because he's the greatest. If God's going to give you the best, what does he have to give you? By definition, if God's going to give you what's best, he has to give you himself. That's what he did in Jesus. That's exactly what he did in Jesus. All right, so notice Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a prophetic utterance. That's 1,000 years, 700 years before this letter is written to the Hebrews. So, what do we know? You're a priest forever. This could be said of the Messiah who was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It can never be said of a priest according to the order of Aaron. None of whom had the power of an endless life and each of whom served a limited term as priests, limited to their own lifespan. So we know this isn't for them. So who's he referencing to come in the future? He's referencing the Messiah. He's referencing Jesus Christ. And that's what the writer to the Hebrew audience is trying to say. Remember Matthew 27, 1, don't turn now, read it. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. The chief priests and the elders plotted to put him to death. Among those who conspired to put Jesus to death, there were priests of the order of Aaron. But Jesus, by the power of an endless life, Jesus showed that his priesthood was superior when he triumphed over death. Verse 18 and 19 of the Hebrews text goes on and says, For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's bringing in of a better hope through God which we draw near to God. So on the one hand, annulling the commandment because of its weakness. In other words, it wasn't going to make anything perfect. Wasn't going to make you complete. That's what it's meaning. It's not going to make you complete in reconciliation to God. If you were in the Old Testament, every year you'd come in and offer that sacrifice. And that would atone for just the year. It was a temporary covering for the next year. You're good for the year, and go, sin no more. Come back next year, we'll take care of business. But Jesus was the fulfillment to remove the sin. Notice, for example, uh, don't get to turn there, I'll just read them, cross-referencing to Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through flesh, 
God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of, of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8.3. Also Galatians 4.9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? He's saying in the Galatians the same things he's saying in Hebrews. Why in the world, after Jesus has set you free, do you want to go put yourself back in prison again? When he has released you from the bondage of the flesh, you want to go back into doing fleshly commandments of the law. Why? That's what he's saying. So, on the other hand, on one hand there's the annulling of the commandments because of its weakness and unprofitableness. But on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus, as our high priest, not only served as our atonement, He is our eternal sacrifice. He has washed us in His blood. He has clothed us in His righteousness. Only because of Him, we are able to draw near to God. I love what John Piper says uh, about this text. He says, Jesus Christ is your asbestos suit. Because God is a consuming fire. And you dare not enter His presence. But Jesus Christ, our King of peace, our King of righteousness, our great high priest who represents man to God, He clothes us in His righteousness. So that when we go into the presence of God, God sees His righteous Son because we're clothed in His completed work. He is our representation. He is our asbestos suit. Now, I don't carry that out to the extreme. It's like, well, I got mesothelioma because of that asbestos, whatever. You understand what I'm saying. So... Verses 20 and 21, just as the writer told the reader the, uh, of the encouragement they can have because of God's promises and oath to Abraham in chapter 6, we are reminded that, there, that inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they've become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then we get to the title of our sermon in verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Enguas is the Greek word. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. Right here. Guarantee. Jesus is a guarantor. He is a guarantor. And last and third point is Messiah, Lord. So we saw Melchizedek's life, we see Mosaic law, and now we see Messiah, Lord in verses 14 through 28. We're here in the midst of it, so let's finish this out. It says here that, um, uh, check out this quote. I want you to read this quote. But Jesus guarantees the perpetual fulfillment of the covenant which he mediates. On the manward side as well as on the Godward side. As the Son of God, He confirms God's eternal covenant with His people as His people's representative. He satisfies its terms with perfect acceptance in God's sight. F.F. F. Bruce. Levitical priests died. They had successors. Some were terrible. 
But Christ's priesthood never ceases, is not broken, because He's eternal, it's unchangeable, because of who He is. Therefore, verse 25, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Did you hear that? God saves to the uttermost. If you tuned out, tune back in. You know what that tells me? You have not gone too far. You have not gone farther than God can reach. God, by His grace, is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're from. I don't know your background. I don't know your story. But I know one who does. And He saves to the uttermost. And not only does that mean that he can reach as far and deep and as wide as he needs to to grab hold of you, to pull you back into right standing with him, it also means that once he has hold of you, no one can pluck you from his hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And he notice what the text says here because he guarantees, he reaches, he saves to the uttermost. He saves completely. There's no need to continually come back and offer up his blood. That's what the writer is implying here. This is a, notice what it says. He's become a better covenant. Also, there are many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever and has an unchangeable priesthood, therefore he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what Jesus Christ is doing right now for you, believer? He's praying. He is praying on your behalf. He is interceding on your behalf. For such a high priest was fitting for us who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become high, higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests did, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins, because he was sinless. For he did this, notice this right here, underline this, he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is why we believe eternal security. He did it once for all time. Don't miss that phrase. That doesn't mean for all people. It means he did it once for all. In other words, it's once and for all finished. It's done. It's, it's referencing a time thing. In other words, here's the point. If you could lose your salvation, Jesus would have to offer blood again on your behalf. Don't trample underfoot the blood of Christ Hebrew writer will say later, because of your misunderstanding. No, when you are saved, when you are sealed until the day of redemption, Jesus has saved to the uttermost. Once for all, the sacrifice was made. He has now entered into the Holy of Holies, and He continually intercedes on your behalf. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. When you are in the ark, another typology, when you are in Christ... You can't be pulled out. God shuts the door. God opens the door. God is the sheep gate. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. But when you're in, you're in. And when you're in and He's in you, there's a difference. There is fruit that comes forth on your tree. Surrender your heart and life today to Jesus Christ because He's the only way. 
Jesus is our great high priest, verse 26, set apart for us. We saw the descriptions, verse 27, does not need to offer up daily sacrifices. We saw that. He did this once for all. It satisfied the requirement. There is no greater sacrifice. It is finished. Verse 28, for the law appoints men who have weakness, but the word of oath appoints a son who's been perfected forever. This is the promised seed. This is Genesis 3.15's fulfillment. This is the word of promise. This is the oath to Abraham. This is to the heirs. This chart sums up everything we've talked about here. I know you can't read it. I won't go through it. But Jesus' priesthood compared to the Levitical priesthood, no comparison. Trade in your moped. Trade in religion. Trade in your self-righteous works. There's something better. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. He is the true king of righteousness. He is the true king of peace. He is our great high priest. He's all you need. He's Jesus. Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, make it known to our hearts. Give us great understanding of these truths because they bring such encouragement and such security. Lord, no doubt there are some here today that are still lost in their sin. They're dead in their trespasses. Uh, maybe they're holding on to a religious system, but that's just what the author of this book is writing to plead with those religious people that religion doesn't save you. You're never going to be good enough. The system's broke. It doesn't bring perfection. But you didn't leave us undone. You provided a means. You provided a way. You provided a sacrifice. You sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And He lived a sinless life. He is our righteousness. He is our Prince of Peace. And he gave himself to satisfy the requirement. If you're here today, I invite you to know him, to be known by him. Turn from your sin. Surrender your heart. Surrender your life. Ask his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Call upon the only name given under heaven by which to be saved. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Ask Him to be your high priest. Ask Him to be your Lord. Ask Him to be your Savior. He saves to the uttermost. There is no sin too dark, too deep, too bad that He can't cleanse. And He demonstrated His love to you in that while you were still a sinner, He died for you. Your sins, all of them were future when he hung on the cross. And he presently lives to intercede. By faith, receive him today. 
Believer, I want to encourage you with this as well. He lives today to intercede on your behalf. Jesus didn't just save you from hell. That word, and I'll hopefully get time in group tonight to discuss, but that, that idea is this. He is saving today. He will save in the future. It is a continual aspect of salvation. He, in the sense that He's able to deliver you from, from the sins that, that easily beset you. He will one day save you from these wretched bodies and bring you to glorification. Have confidence in the finished work. Recognize Jesus Christ as your high priest who lives to intercede on your behalf. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.